Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Ahoy, hello, explorers. Thank you so much for being there. It's the end of another fantastic science field year. So let's take a look at the best of 2023 for our Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. This is the show where we explore the universe together and we take a look at some of those sneaky bits of science that lurk around, are always hidden. We uncover those secrets And this week, we will take a listen to some of the best things that we did over the last 12 months. The best guests that we chatted to, the most amazing things that we found out. And we'll hear from Amy Meek. Uh, She is from Kids Against Plastic. You might have heard of those. It's an organisation that are trying to save the world and they want you to be involved with it. And she came on to tell us loads. I always try to be optimistic when it comes to our planet because for me, that's the thing that helps me keep going to try and protect it. Also, you can hear from two incredible geniuses who help put science on the telly. Not just any science, they time travel with Sir David Attenborough. We will catch up with Mike Gunton and Tim Walker who worked on Sir David's series Prehistoric Planet. We kick off thinking about what dinosaurs are going to be in it, what other animals are going to be in it, where we're going to film. We start writing stories based on the fossils that show us which animals were around in which locations. We design the dinosaurs and start using animation to turn those dinosaurs into real depictions of what we think they look like. It's all coming up in the best of 2023 in the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, halfway through the year, we chatted to someone called Ted Melville, who has really stayed with me. His story. At school, he helped create the first rocket-making club that his school had. And at the weekend, you might uh, play football, you might go dancing, you might do acting. He joins up with other rocket-makers And he went to represent Team GB, his country, in the World Space Modelling Championships in Austin, Texas. Uh, This was back through the summer. And a few of Team GB did very well. They placed in that championships. Let's take a listen to how excited Ted was going out there. You've got to tell us. Why did you start getting into rocketry? What was it so fascinating that you had to get involved? Well, I mean, you always see on the television, don't you, the the biggest and the best rocket launches that are coming out, whether it's SpaceX and Elon Musk or, um, I don't know, Blue Origin, perhaps you may have seen at home. Um, and it is really fascinating to see them go up and you can see the flames coming out. It's just a, it's a wonderful sight for anyone, let alone a, a rocketry enthusiast like myself and some of your listeners at home. But... Like, I love rockets, but I've never tried to build one because they're really, really hard. Like, how old were you when you started to play around with these things and make them? And what could you do at school to help out? 
Yeah, so I was only eight years old, actually, when I started in primary school. Um, and that's sort of when, when my love of rocketry sort of festered into more of a hobby. I think the, pr- the problem really is that people just don't really know how to get involved with rocketry. I think lots of people enjoy the, the hobby, but don't know where to start. And I think that that's really important that we get the message across that there are places to go. I mean, if you ask your local engineering club, even go, go into school and say, this is what I'm interested in, there, there are loads of opportunities to get involved, I think you'll find, and your teachers will be more than happy. Uh, and people like myself, I, d- I don't mind coming, c- coming wherever and helping you out. That's what, that's what people in the rocketry field do. We come and help each other. Um, and I think there really is a nice community out here uh, among rocket scientists, and I do recommend people to get involved. Just ask around, and that there is opportunities for everyone. How big is the rocketry scene in the UK, how many amateur rocket enthusiasts are making these things all the time? Because you've competed in competitions in this country too, right? Yes, yeah. Um, there's a lot more than you think, actually. There are events every weekend all across the all across the UK in different countries like Wales and Scotland as well. And you can see up to hundreds of people turning up to each of these every weekend. I have been involved in national competitions against the best in the UK. Uh, they happen once a year and you go and you compete for medals and places at world championships. What's the most impressive thing you have ever helped create before you got involved to head out to America with Team GB? So when you get into rocketry, you find all of these things called different certifications. And what it means is you're qualified to build the next step up, a little bit bigger, a little bit more powerful, and then it's an extra level of danger. Um, And so I got my level one certification a couple of years ago, and that is really, it's quite special to, to see, and you can feel it in your heart, the, the rumble of the engine when it goes up. There are steps after that, but uh, ever since I got that qualification, I sort of took a step uh, into the finer side of the engineering, which is the British team and what they do for the world championship models. How big are the rockets that you and other rocket enthusiasts in the UK tend to make? I mean, we're not talking, you know, SpaceX that's halfway to Mars. No, there is a huge vary though. You can get tiny little kits that go on motors the size of your pinky finger and then you get rockets that are taller than you, sometimes taller than your house as well. I once saw a rocket that was about the same size as a three-story house. (laughs) It's so amazing that this happens and I have... Like been all over science my life. I've done this podcast for years and years and I can't believe I'm just finding out about it. And I mentioned right at the start, you are going to the USA to take on the world. Tell us more about who you're going with, how long you're there, what's the competition, what do you need to do? Okay, so the competition is a world championships. The best from every country in the world that's taken part come to to one location to compete against each other. And there are different specifications for each of the rockets. Uh, that basically means you've got to make your rocket do a certain thing and whoever can do that the best sort of wins the gold medal. There's a huge range of different types of rockets. There are 10 classes that we fly while while we're out there. One of those is a boost glider, so it goes up and comes down as a plane. Another is a gyrocopter, it goes up as a rocket and then comes down as a helicopter. 
And those are really difficult to engineers. They sort of go up as one medium and come down as a completely different one. You go out there with the rest of the British team. The, the British team and every other national team is split up into two sections, and that is the junior team and the senior team. So if you're under the age of 18, then you'd be in the junior team like I am myself, and you compete against then the best juniors in the world rather than the seniors. So they are separated so that you're not in the deep end. What other countries do you know are taking part? Um, I think there's 20 countries at the moment taking part um, from all across the globe. We've got America, the hosts, which um, they have the most people attending. Um, We've got most mid-European, Western European, like Slovakia, Serbia, Germany, Italy. And then we've even got China, they're attending as well. It's it's really all across the globe you can find this. Um, and I think that's what's so special. You have all these different cultures, different designs you find in the rocket that are based on environmental factors and everything. And when they all come together, you can learn from one another in these competitions. So you're making 10 different rockets, is that right? So there's 10 different classes. And actually, you have to make a few rockets per class because in, in the eventuality that something does go wrong, you then have to be prepared to, to go and pull out another model ready for your next flight. How long have you spent designing all of these rockets? So just for this competition in Texas in a couple of weeks, uh, I've been spending two years refining my models. So I would go every month, most weekends I'd be working on these from morning to night, trying to get them to the very edge, the the very challenging bits of engineering. And that's what gives you your, your margin against your competitors. And you're going out there with Wilf and Charlie. They're on, on your team too. When you're making stuff together uh are there any like proper grown-ups adults around or is it just you three kind of doing your own thing so you do have the senior team and they often are very helpful they share their advice uh, and they can they can even help you build your models uh while we're back here in the uk uh, obviously, when we're in Texas, we're going to be a bit more on our own um, as it's sort of competition. You need you need to know what you're doing for the competition. But w- there are loads of people back here to help you uh, if you want to get involved. And certainly when I got involved, all of the seniors were very helpful for me. Um, when you go to these competitions in, just in the UK, it's it's less of a competition feeling and more of a weekend. You go out and enjoy. And if you come away with a medal, then that's great. But you do learn from each of the weekends you go. How high are you hoping your rockets get to the, in the sky? So you have classes which have specific altitudes that you have to hit. So one of our models has to reach a thousand feet. Um, and then if you go over, you lose points. If you go under, you lose points as well. So it's it's really challenging. You've got to get the exact altitude. There is one class that I came away with a silver medal in uh, not too long ago, and that was an altitude class, which means you've got to get as high as possible. Um, but the catch is they're on the lowest power motors you can find in the world. And so you need to make your model incredibly lightweight and you have to work on these models for years to refine them, to refine the stability and everything. And those models often go up to, I'd say, about 400 feet, 500 feet. One thing I am worried about is you getting there. Not because I don't trust you in an airport. It's, uh, you know, when I go on holiday with my family, with my mum and dad, like, 
we're dragging along our luggage and we've got big boxes anyway. Whereas you, you're taking loads of rockets over there. How are you getting it there? It is really challenging. We have to work out as a team who brings what. Obviously, there's a bit of, oh, can you take this of mine? Oh, I don't mind taking. And it's sort of grouping together the stuff that you that you need to get there. Um, obviously, some of us are going on separate flights. So, And at the moment, we've got the Heathrow strikes going on. We don't want one flight to be cancelled and then no one can compete. So we've got to split it a little bit. Are you, are you competing separately with Wilf and Charlie or are you all part of the team? It's part of a team. It's it's team events. You you can obviously win individual medals, but when you go out there, it's just your team and it's the best team score that you want to get to get the gold medal. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. More of the best of 2023 on the way. We'll chat to people who have made programmes with Sir David Attenborough and also uh, someone who's going to take us up to Mars is coming up right now. Let's catch up with Techno Mum. She is a techno genius. She knows all about the gadgets that we use every day, why they are there, who made them, what use they have. Let's see what she's up for this week. Techno Mum Fast Files. You get cameras everywhere these days, in phones and on your laptop or tablet. But how do digital cameras make pictures? Let's find out. Say cheese. Light goes into the lens and lands on a small sensor. The sensor is divided into millions of tiny squares, or pixels as they're called. Each little square is a bit like a solar panel. You know that a solar panel takes light and makes it into electricity. Well, the same thing is going on in your camera. As the image hits the sensor, each square gets a different electrical charge depending on the brightness and the colour of the light hitting it. The computer in the camera takes the grid of electrical charges and converts them into a picture. It's recorded as a computer file so it can be accessed as many times as you like and moved around. Different cameras have different amounts of squares. Mega means million, so a 2 megapixel camera has 2 million pixels or squares on its sensor. Check to see how many megapixels or millions of squares are in your digital cameras. Technomom with the Institution of Engineering and Technology, advancing and sharing knowledge. One of the things I love most doing this show and chatting to all sorts of guests is when I hear from young people who are making a difference. Someone like you, who is going out there, who's doing their bit, trying to save the world. And earlier this year, we caught up with Amy Meek. She is the co-founder of Kids Against Plastic. They aim to help you learn about environmental issues like plastic pollution and the climate crisis. They've got so much going on online that can help you really make a difference and try and change the world. Now, Amy is a little bit older now than when she started Kids Against Plastic. She is uh, at university. And a few months ago, I had a chat with her to find out what she's doing with very smart people in government to try and change the world. Now, Amy, back three years ago, we spoke. Kids Against Plastic was a thing, but it was kind of just starting out. You had released a book. How has our use of plastic in the world changed in the last three years? That is a really good question. And to be honest, it's not an easy one to answer. But I think, to be honest, our use of plastic is becoming better in the world. Because last time we spoke, we were actually in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, if I remember correctly. So 
that was a time when our use of plastic worldwide really skyrocketed, not only because of the medical use of plastic, which you could argue at the moment is one of its more necessary functions, but because people were starting to use plastic again for everything, whether it was getting takeout drinks because they didn't want to use something that was reusable in case, you know, it carried uh, germs and things on it. And the really good thing is that now we've come out of the pandemic and people have started to see that actually it is still safe to use things like reusable items. And there's so much awareness of plastic now, even compared to when we first started our charity, that actually worldwide use of plastic, whilst it is still increasing, there's much more awareness and there's much more action like bans by governments and campaigns being run to try and encourage people to use less and especially for companies to produce less plastic. It's interesting that this is all happening, but you said that our use of plastic is still going up. Even with all that, how optimistic are you for the future that eventually we can drastically cut single-use plastics down? I think it's not going to be an easy thing to achieve, but I always try to be optimistic when it comes to our planet, because for me, that's the thing that helps me keep going to try and protect it. Because I think if we start going it's doom and gloom, it's the end of the world, we're not going to manage to tackle this issue that really needs addressing, then, you know, what's the motivation to actually try and do anything about it? Whereas I try and remain realistically optimistic, I think, where I'm not saying this is going to be an easy thing to achieve. There's definitely a long way to go and we need much more awareness, but also much more action on a large scale from people like governments and companies. But I think that we can do it. And I think there's been so much progress over the last few years that we just really need to keep pushing. And especially as young people, we have such important voices in this fight as well. In the last three years, under Kids Against Plastic, you've done some pretty incredible things and had to chat to some pretty important people. How difficult has it been, you know, being being young, like being part of Kids Against Plastic, getting these old quite serious people who might be a bit set in their ways and aren't that focused about the future to kind of take you seriously and listen to what you think. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes it can be quite tricky. I think that when you go into a a room full of important people as a young person, sometimes they might not take you as seriously as you hope to be taken. But the thing is, there are so many young people doing work for our environment now that actually it's becoming a much more common to have a young person stand up in a room and say, look, you really need to take action on this issue. And I think that's great to see because young people have such important voices in this fight because we really have the urgency to take action on this issue that sometimes is lacked by people in really big positions of power. So we have a hugely important role to go into rooms and kind of shake things up a bit and say, look, we really need to see action now for some of these issues. And even if it can be hard and even if sometimes you might not be taken seriously it doesn't mean that it's not important to do and we really need to keep going with it and your work with kids against plastic has mean you're now like a voice bigger than just the plastic concern you're doing all sorts and you are working with common seas at the moment i know that you did a lot about world ocean day a month or so ago just tell us about your role there So Common Seas are an organisation that we've been working with for the last few years as part of Kids Against Plastic, especially around our schools initiative, which is called Plastic Clever Schools. And Plastic Clever Schools is all about helping young people realise what they can do with their teachers and their schools to reduce their plastic usage in a way that's 
more manageable. So not like saying you've got to jump to being completely plastic free, but actually here are some really small things that you can all get involved in in your school and that you as a young person can lead. And so with Common Seas, we've been doing loads of work on this initiative over the last couple of years, and we've had over 700 schools sign up since it's relaunched just over a year and a bit ago. And actually for World Oceans Day for Schools this year, as you mentioned, uh, we worked with them to produce a video which was presented by one of our Kids Against Plastic members, who was this 12-year-old girl called Inaya, who did an incredible job. And the video was all about the amazing parts of our ocean and how important it is the damage that humans are doing to it, but most importantly, what we can all do to try and make an impact on this issue of plastic or even more widely as well. Now, I know what schools are like. And quite often, if someone kind of puts their head above the rest and does something that's slightly different, that maybe not everyone else is doing, uh, it's not always taken really well, right? People can say some quite mean things. Now, just remembering back to when you started Kids Against Plastic, uh, like what was that like? How, how did everyone else that you were around and schoolmates and other kids that you were with at school, how did they take that? Yeah, to be honest, I'm going to be honest and say it wasn't always easy. Exactly as you said, I think sometimes people just don't fully get why you're doing something, especially if it's something a little bit different, like running a campaign called Kids Against Plastic for the Environment. You know, that's not something that most of our schoolmates will hear about most people doing. And I think for us, a lot of that negativity came from lack of awareness around these issues. And it's been amazing in the last few years to see how many young people are now educated on some of the big issues facing our planet. But I think the really important thing to remember and the thing that we always tried to remember when we first started Kids Against Plastic is firstly how important what you're doing is and to not let any negativity stop you. But also remember that even if people at your school don't quite fully get what you're doing, there are so many young people around the world who are completely in your corner and are here to support you, which is exactly why we run Kids Against Plastic, to really create this positive network of young people who can come together and say, look, we all care about this. We all have the same mindset around this. How can we support each other and really make a difference? Now, not everyone listening maybe can start their own campaign, start their own charity. But if we are looking towards the future to really cut down our plastic use, what are just like the, the, the top few tips that you give people who want to help sort out the way that they deal with the environment and plastic in their family? Absolutely. To help the environment, you don't have to do something massive like start a campaign. When we first started Kids Against Plastic, we did not intend to be running a charity seven and a half years later or whatever down the line. So it doesn't it doesn't have to be something that takes over your life, I promise you. And actually, the more people that are doing something small for our environment, it's so much more important than one person doing something huge. And so I'd say the really great places to start to try and do something to help our planet is firstly, just raise awareness, you know, speak to your family and your school and your friends about what these issues are and what we can all do to help them. And really, I guess, stay positive is my other focus is don't, I guess, pretend that everything's perfect. You don't have to do that. But really just be aware that the impact that you're making and the steps that you're taking are making a difference, even if sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Because some of these issues facing our planet, like plastic pollution, can feel so huge and overwhelming. And it's easy to feel like as one individual, you just can't make a difference. But that couldn't be further from true. And whether it is taking action at home and starting to reduce one use of plastic or whether it's just speaking to people or taking action at your school 
all of these things really add up and they are so priceless to help our planet. Looking to the future then, for you, where do you take this in the future? Like, how is Kids Against Plastic and your work with Common Seas, how is that going to impact how you are going to spend, uh, I guess, your life as an adult at work, getting a job? Like, what? how much do you think about that? Oh, gosh, that's a really big question. And uh, I, I'm in university now, so I'm really trying not to think about questions like that. But I think, to be honest, I, I think most young people will find that once you start to get involved in an issue that you're really passionate about, whether it is something environmental related or whether it's something completely different, it's really hard to just break away from it and go, you know what, I'm just going to go and do a job now that's completely different. And I think for me, that's definitely the case. Environmental action and most importantly, youth action around the environment is something that I'm so passionate about. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where Kids Against Plastic goes in the future and the Plastic Clever Schools Initiative to really engage as many young people in this as possible so that Kids Against Plastic isn't something that you know, I'm, I'm nearly 20 now. I'm not technically a kid anymore. And it's something that I'm really passionate about other young people being able to take control of and lead in the future and make their own as well. Uh, if people want to find out more about Kids Against Plastic and how they can help take control and, and help it grow, what, where should they go? Well, we have our website, which is probably the best place to start, which is kidsagainstplastic.co.uk. And on there, you can find our contact details and you can find information about the Kids Against Plastic Club and the different initiatives that we run. And we also, of course, have the Plastic Clever Schools website, which is plasticcleverschools.co.uk, which is where you can find everything you need to get your school involved in taking action for the environment. Loads to do. Amy Meek, thank you for joining. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this year has been a pretty big one looking across space. We've been following the Mars rover. A little while ago, NASA, the American space people, they managed to land a rover on Mars. It's been travelling around, picking up rocks, taking brilliant crystal clear pictures and sending them back to Earth. And a little earlier this year, we caught up with Anna Hallston, who is a planetary seismologist. Seismologists study quakes. So here on Earth, earthquakes. Up on Mars, Marsquakes. And she can tell us all about the different things they're studying up on Mars with NASA's mission there. So you were part, well, you're part of NASA's InSight mission team. This was a a launcher that went to Mars almost five years ago now to study what's actually inside the planet. It's all about Mars quakes. So start us off. What's a Mars quake? Well, I guess you're all familiar with the idea of earthquakes, which obviously we have on Earth, which formed when the plate tectonics, the tectonic plates on the Earth, move around. Um, and on Mars, we also see Mars quakes. Um, so it's just a, like an earthquake, but on Mars. So how much do we know about what makes up 
Mars, what's inside it. Here on Earth, we have the crust, we've got tectonic plates, we've got inner and outer layers, we have the core. How much do we know about that, but up on the red planet? Well, now we know quite a lot. So um, Mars also has a crust. Um, It's not split into tectonic plates, but there are fault lines on it from old geological activity. So Mars used to be really hot, and there are big volcanoes that are now mostly extinct, um, and there's big canyons and trenches and all sorts of faults that are still moving. So we have the crust, and underneath that we have the mantle, which is quite like the Earth on uh, the mantle we have here on Earth. And then we have a core inside it, which is also a bit like Earth's core in that it is, there's at least a large part of it that's liquid. Um, so the difference between Earth and Mars is that we don't know whether there's a solid inner core inside Mars yet, but all the other things we have managed to uh, confirm with our latest mission there. And earthquakes are usually made by the, the shifting, these moving of the tectonic plates and, and everything kind of rumbling on beneath them. What, what, what causes the Mars quakes? So most of the Mars quakes um, we think are probably caused, well, a lot of them are caused by cooling of the planet. So obviously um, all the planets when they form are quite hot inside. And so they try to lose heat. And if you think of maybe like a, if you had a cake and you bake it and it comes out of the oven and it's all nice and risen and while well, it's still hot, and then it might cool and it will uh, kind of collapse on itself and, and form cracks on the surface. The surface of Mars is kind of like a cooling a cooling cake. Um, and there are also areas, obviously, like where we've had volcanoes, where there, there might be some ancient lava flows underground that are moving, and that would cause um, the surface above to crack as well. So this InSight lander is roaming around Mars. What are we trying to find out with it? So InSight, it's actually, it's not roaming. It's a static lander. So we just sit in one place. But um, we really wanted to find out. So if you want to find out inside a planet, the only real way of looking inside a planet is to use like earthquakes or Mars quakes or Venus quakes or moon quakes, um, because it's the only way to get energy that passes all the way through the planet. We can't drill down deep down into the planet. So we've gone there basically to try and find out yeah, what Mars is made of, because we know what Earth's made of, because we've been studying it for a very long time. Um, but we didn't know what exactly what was inside Mars. So that was our mission was to find out what is inside the planet. And how is this launcher doing that? Did you say we can't drill down inside Mars? No, well, I mean, in that we can't really drill down into any planet beyond a few kilometres or so. Mm. Um, so on Mars, we did have a little probe that was trying to drill down just five metres. Um, that was trying to take the temperature of, of the, the, the top of the planet. Um, and we found that really, really hard because the sand is not like the sand we have on Earth. So the little mole, it was it, we called it a mole. It was a probe that was supposed to hammer its way into the planet, but it just couldn't do it. So, um, so yeah, it's very hard to get anything um a robotic mission to drill into a planet um but um yeah the the seismic instrument is has been working really really well actually we did we did lose power just uh, about three weeks ago now but um it was working very well for four and a bit years so so what is it doing then so this launcher there in one place excuse me uh, it can't go down it's it's judging this seismic activity how is it doing that what's the kit what's it looking at Okay, so we have what's called a, a seismometer, and uh, it's put right on the ground on Mars. So our lander had a robotic arm that lifted the seismometer from the deck of the lander and put it onto the ground. And it literally measures the vibrations of the ground, just like a seismometer does on Earth. So a seismometer, I don't know whether you might have an app on your phone that can do this. Um, it will literally measure the shaking of whatever it's sat on. So our seismometer is sat on the ground of Mars, and it listens to the way the ground 
shakes. And often the ground just shakes because there's like wind blowing past and that shakes everything. Um, just like you hear the tr sound of trees being blown around on Earth, but we don't have trees on Mars, but it still shakes the ground. Um, but then also earthquakes. What an earthquake does is it releases a shock wave. If you've ever dropped a stone into a puddle and you see those waves rippling out across the puddle, an earthquake does the same, but to the ground. So it shakes the ground and causes waves to travel all the way through the ground and shaking of the ground. And we can record that. So a Marsquake, an earthquake, wherever we are, um, we can record it wherever it happened on the planet. And how are Marsquakes telling you what the red planet is actually made of? So we've got a couple of different things. So firstly, we can uh, we can look at where they've happened and that can tell us what's happening in those regions. But looking at the deep inside of the planet, um, if you think of, um, say, a sound wave, if I um, hit like a piece of a glass or something, in fact, I could do this now, right now, I don't know how well this will come across, but if I, I've got a glass in my hand and if I flick it, you get a nice ringing noise from it. I hope that came across. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, if I hit something else, so I'm going to hit the back of my phone now. Um, that's a really dull, thunking noise. So you get different sound waves for different things. Everything has a different resonance to it. So by looking at the waves that we've seen that have traveled through Mars, we can tell what the inside of Mars is um, because we have an idea of what it might be like. We assume it's like the inside of Earth. So we think, okay, the energy should sound like this or it should look like this. It should take that long to get to us from wherever it started. Um, and so we do that with the shock waves so we can use them to tell us exactly what is inside the planet. And we've been really, really lucky. So we went there with an idea of what the inside of the planet might look like. And we said, oh, we've seen Mars quakes and we think they're this far away. And then for some of them, we've actually seen they've been formed. The quake has happened because of a meteorite hitting wow. Mars. Um, and so we've got an image, a photograph from uh, other satellites that are orbiting the planet that show us exactly where the Mars quakes happened because they're actually things hitting the planet. And that's exactly where we thought they should have been from our modeling of what we'd recorded. So we, we, we know that actually, yeah, what we think is inside Mars is pretty much what is inside Mars. Um, so it's been really, really exciting to work on the mission. Here on planet Earth, um, what we measure, I guess the, the most famous example of measuring earthquakes, how strong they are, is, is the Richter scale. That's what a lot of people might know. And uh, the different sizes of earthquakes, the strengths, you get different numbers and they might, you might not feel them. It might cause utter destruction. What do we use to measure Mars quakes? Is there a similar scale? H how much impact does a rumble on the red planet cause? Okay, so yeah, we do use a very similar scale. We've actually taken the, the kind of Richter scale and the scales we use to measure earthquakes, and then we've scaled them to work on Mars, because Mars is a planet half the size of Earth. But So we, we have our own scales. We call them the Mars magnitude scales, but they do basically the same thing. So we've seen most of the quakes are really small. They're, so if you think on Earth, you'd probably hear in the news about maybe a magnitude six earthquake. You'd definitely hear about a seven, eight or a nine. And a nine is like a really big earthquake. Now on Mars, our, our Mars quakes are much smaller. So they're mostly like one or two or three on that scale. We've got a couple that are four. And we've got one that's like 4.6. So that's the kind of quake that you would feel on Earth. A magnitude four, you would feel if you were close by to it. Um, 
But the little ones and twos, you'd only feel it if it was really like in your neighborhood, basically. So they're really small little quakes, but our seismometer is so sensitive that we can pick them up from half a planet away on Mars. Now, this is a, I I guess all, all of science, whatever anyone does on science, we're finding things out because we can. There seems to be a lot going on here on Earth at the moment. There are a lot of problems, some might argue, with our planet. So the question now is, I guess what, what it comes across as quite abrupt, and I apologise, but what's the point in all this, Anna? Why are we trying to find out so much about Mars at the moment? That's a really good question, and I, I often wonder myself why we spend so much on going to space. There are a couple of reasons. Um, Mars has always fascinated us, and science as just fascination, evolution, it, it drives so many things, the space race and all the things we did when trying to get humans to the moon back in the 60s, and even now trying to get humans back to, to the moon as, as NASA are trying to do. All of these missions advance our technologies and produce things that we use here on Earth. But Mars in particular, um, we yeah, we're just fascinated with it. From a science point of view, knowing what happens inside another planet will help us know what might happen inside Earth in the long term because Earth is a, it, it formed in a very similar way, we think, to Mars, but had a slightly different history along the way, which is why Mars is half the size of Earth. There are lots of things that have happened there, but the way Mars is now is the way Earth might end up being. Um, so in terms of scientific understanding of how our planet might work that's one reason we do it um i think the biggest reason is just that we really want to go and explore places (laughs) (laughs) we do it because we can thank you so much dr anna hauliston planetary seismologist what a treat it's been a joy thank you anna in just a second we will take a look at one of the best science programs of the year the two brilliant genius directors and producers who managed to help Sir David Attenborough take you back in time millions of years. Right now, let's take a look. Well, inside you, inside your gut with NNG, they are our microbe friends. They're always there burrowing away, breaking down food, keeping you healthy, but also helping you make very big choices, seeing what's right and what's wrong with ethical dilemmas. You're right, Benny here. And I'm Mal. As you know, me and Benny have been having lots of fun imagining all the cool ways we could change our bodies. And it turns out you lot have been doing the same. That's right. Now, different people will look at things in different ways. Some may think, that's brilliant. Others, though, may well be a little more unsure. Yeah, I was getting to that. Okay, right, against the clock. Who's on the line today? Hello, my name is Lucas. I'd like to improve my eyesight so I could zoom in on things really far away and even have x-ray vision when I needed it. Brilliant idea. How cool would that be? How can we possibly find any con for that? It would be a really helpful way of finding lost things. Nice pro there. And doctors could use their x-ray vision to find out what is wrong with you instead of having to operate or use harmful radiation. There's another pro. Pros all the way so far. But how would you like it if someone used the x-ray vision to see right through your clothes? What do you think? Well, I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't bother you. Um, Yes, it would bother me. I wouldn't want anyone to see me without any clothes. And people with x-ray vision might be able to see what birthday presents I'm wrapping up. Hmm, privacy is important. So for me, that's a big... 
It's a brain-busting body bamboozler for sure. Sure is. Catch you next time. Brain Teasing Fast Files with Benny and Mal with support from the Nuffield Council on Bioethics. Find out more at funkidslive.com forward slash Benny and Mal. Before we finish up for another brilliant year of the Fun Kids Science Weekly, let's take a listen to one of my favourite chats from 2023 when I caught up with Mike Gunton and Tim Walker. They worked on a brand new Apple TV Plus show called Prehistoric Planet. It was with Sir David Attenborough and using state-of-the-art technology, incredibly smart computers, they helped you travel back through time. Tim, let me just start by asking, what's the time frame for making something like this? It seems like such a mind-bogglingly long and huge process. When do you have the first idea? And then what happens next before we see it on screen? The first idea for this came from the guy sat to my right, Mike. Uh, He had the idea over 11, 12 years ago when he was making another series. It then took a long time to get all the people in the right place to join up with Apple TV Plus and to get everything going. We started the production four and a half years ago. Uh, we, we kick off thinking about what dinosaurs are going to be in it, what other animals are going to be in it, where we're going to film. We start writing stories based on the fossils that show us which animals were around in which locations. And then we think about what other characters we want to bring in. And then we start the filming process. We go and film a real-world back place. That's the beautiful scenery you see in the background. And then the real hardcore work starts when we design the dinosaurs and start using animation to turn those dinosaurs into into real depictions of what we think they look like. So the whole thing, about four and a half years, but Mike had the idea over 12 years ago. (laughs) Tim, you mentioned hard work there. And I did notice that at the start when you put some of the responsibility on Mike. Mike, you had your head in your hands at one point. So just just, just tell us, what are the, some of the problems and the monumental challenges that face making a project of this sheer size? It's such a big endeavour that we see. What do you kind of stumble across, Mike? The main thing about this is to be authentic and accurate. So for, to put all this time and work into this, it would be heartbreaking if we got it wrong. So... You have to make commitments to what these animals are going to look at. Before you can bring them to life, so much work has to go into that. And so every time you make a decision about they have feathers, what, how fast can they run? How, what do their beaks look like? What do their claws look like? What do their, all those decisions about, about the project, once you've made them, there's no going back. So that, that's the hardest thing of all, because what you fear is you've decided it's going to be like this, and then some scientist finds a new fossil and says, ah, sorry, actually, that <laughs> well, got three of ones instead of two. Luckily, that, that didn't happen. But also, I think it's not even that it's a, a challenge. One of the joys of doing it is when you do all that work, it's like creating um, something that it starts off just as a nebulous thing on a confusion. As you go further and further through the project, this thing genuinely feels like it's coming to life. And so when you see the final project, you feel like you've been transported. You've got into a time machine. You've flown back 66 million years, opened the doors, and there you are having a safari on planet Earth at the time of the dinosaurs. There they are. And if you get that right, and I think we have, it's such an extraordinary experience because wouldn't we all love to be able to do that? How do you begin collecting the research for this? I mean, we've touched on suddenly we might find another fossil which completely changes the game. But you mentioned the stories earlier. 
And I was thinking about the other series that Sir David Attenborough has given us, you know, Planet Earth or the Wild Isles series that was on telly recently. And we follow these creatures. And I know that the cameramen and people who work on it would do it over the course of many, many years tracking these animals. But this is completely different because they're all computer generated. So how do you do the research to come up with these stories, Tim? Well, look, it is different, but it's very similar as well, because that's the, the beauty of this marriage between the BBC Natural History Unit and the CGI world, is that we take the expertise of people that have been out filming animals for many, many years. They've experienced what it's like to try and capture amazing behavior of lions or bears or puffins or foxes. And we take that experience and then marry it together with the amazing animation work that the CGI artists do. And to get our stories, we start off with the fossil record. So we know quite a lot about this period in geological time. It's called the Maastrichtian. It's the last few million years of the dinosaur's reign, around about 66 million years ago. There's a really good fossil record there that shows us the animals and the plants that were around at that time. So we can see which animals were around. We can see what kind of habitats they were living in. Then we think about the types of behavior they do. And animals do the same kind of behavior across the world. So animals that are in Australia do very, very similar things to ones that are in Africa or in America to get over the issues that they face by just having to live every day. They need to mate, they need to eat, they need to not be eaten by predators. So all of these normal daily behaviors. The same set of behaviors had to take place 66 million years ago because a dinosaur was an animal. And so it had to eat, it had to mate, it had to try not to be eaten if it was a smaller one. And so we can start to build this incredibly rich picture, all based on the fossil record, then combining the experience of the wildlife teams, the paleontologists and the CGI experts. It just paints this really rich picture of what it must have been like 66 million years ago. You are like Sherlock Holmes, picking all these clues from lots of different areas and then putting them all together and the jigsaw puzzle doesn't work quite right and you find another bit of the jigsaw puzzle and then another bit and they kick it. Suddenly goes to the bridge you go, ah, ah, that must be the way it happened. So wow. I'm pretty confident, you know, when all the bits of evidence come together, you can be pretty confident that is a, as accurate as it's possible to be. We spoke about the the technological developments that have really helped this show happen. And Mike, we heard earlier how this has been in your mind for like 12 years. At what point, when you're making a show like this, do you start to think about the incredible technology and the future of technology that might help you bring this to life and how that might change in the future? So we've got this now, but in 10 years, we might get an even better representation of dinosaurs. When do you start to make those choices? Well, there's no doubt, even in the even in the last five years when we've been working on this project, the speed of the computing power, which of course you have to have for this, the, the amount of computing power to, to generate as creatures is utterly mind-blowing. But and that, that has increased. Of course, technology is a big part of this, but I'm pleased to say that no, another big part of this is human endeavor, yeah. imagination, joining the dots in a way that at the moment, only the human brain, I think, is capable of doing. So, yes, of course, being able to speed up the, the computing power, maybe do the job quicker, but whether it'll be better, I don't know. I think there's some ingredients in this that I think 
isn't in the realm of computing. It's still in the realm of the human brain and the intuition and the imagination that a human brain needs to have to join these dots of all this disparate evidence that comes from so many different sources to come up with these stories and feel that they're authentic. There was a couple of really cool bits of technology that we embraced that were developing as we were making the production as well. One of them was we started to use game technology. Loads of people have got VR headsets and you know, virtual reality games. We did the same with our dinosaurs. So we made virtual environments that had the dinosaurs in them. And you could don a VR headset and enter that world and work out where you would be near a T-Rex or near some of the pterosaurs and work out where to place your cameras. So you're entering this VR version of the prehistoric planet to produce the shots that are then eventually going to turn into these photoreal depictions of the dinosaurs. I still think the intuition still comes from that scientific... It, it comes from experience. It comes from physical experience. You know, one of the reasons why I think this series feels and looks the way it does, as Tim has said, we are wildlife filmmakers, so we're used to filming animals. We know when it feels right what animals are doing. And I think that's unique because mo- I think most people who have tried to enter this world in the past perhaps haven't had that experience. You can't buy that. You can only get that by doing it. You know, you have to you have to have done this thing. David actually was involved in this series, as you know, he's been doing this for 75 years. You know, that that's that, that that's something you just, that's unique. Well, let's lastly just speak about Sir David Attenborough. He has brought us so many fantastic programs over the last 75 years, as you mentioned, opened so many people's eyes to the the world around us in in ways that have never been done before. And this, again, this new one is game-changing. It would seem to me he only puts his name on something that has to be the best of the best. It's the seal of approval. How inspirational is that for you and for filmmakers working with someone who... It, it, it just it needs to be great. It needs to be fantastic. You can't let, I'll use the cliche, national treasure, but you can't let Sir David Attenborough down. Well, you've hit the nail on the net. It's exactly right. That is exactly right. The self-pressure to do your best work because you're working with the, the best. And so you don't want to let yourself down. You don't want to let him down. Also, he's still, you know, he's got an incredible TV program. And yet he gives great what we call notes, pointers about where we're, what he thinks it should be like. And that's still incredibly valuable. He's got such a, a wonderful sense of what makes great TV. And working with him on this project was, was the vital ingredient for its feel. You know, it wouldn't feel like it does without his voice on it. Yes. The authority and the pleasure you get from hearing him tell these stories. It's, our, it's the final cherry on top of the cake. When he not only gives a seal of approval, but when he does his voice recording for it, it's like hearing the best storyteller read you a bedtime story about dinosaurs. It's wow. Funny. Well, if, if you're listening to this and you love dinosaurs, and why wouldn't you, and you want to time travel, watching this show, it's the new prehistoric planet. It's just doing it in a way that you would never experience before. It's all the brilliant work of Mike Gunson, Tim Walker. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. And that is it for this very special best of the year episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. I hope you will be with us next year. We have huge plans going into 2024 and I can't wait for you to be part of them. 
If you've enjoyed the show, remember you can listen to so many brilliant podcasts on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. They're on funkidslive.com and the free Fun Kids app. You've got bonus episodes and loads more of your favourite Fun Kids shows completely ad-free if you subscribe to Fun Kids Podcasts Plus on our website. And Fun Kids, we are our children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the place on the free Fun Kids app at funkidslive.com. And if you've got a smart speaker, wake it up with the magic word and ask it to play Fun Kids. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!